The following lecture was produced by the Rhode Island Student Assistance Services with funding from the Rhode Island Department of Health. Welcome to the Rhode Island Youth Mental Health Webinar Series. This week's topic, What on Earth Were You Thinking? Why Adolescents Take Risks? Presented by Colleen Judge. Remember, your feedback is important to us. Please fill out the survey in the description below for your chance at winning a $100 gift card. Thank you. Well, good evening, everyone. And thank you for joining this learning experience on adolescent risk-taking. What on earth were you thinking? I'm Sarah Dink, Director of Rhode Island Students and we have this series of webinars focused on youth mental health and trauma and the unique role that parents educate in youth. This series is brought to you in partnership with the Rhode Island Department of Health. For those two of you who have attended other webinars, you know the drill, and you heard this introduction many times. For those of you joining for the first time, located below this video, you will see a description box with links to our website and Facebook page, where we will let you know when more content like this will be released. In addition, don't forget to complete the post survey so we can get your input on topics for future webinars. By completing the survey, you will have the ability to receive contact hours and a chance to win a $100 gift card. I am very proud to bring you Colleen Judge, the Director of School-Based Services here at RISAS. Colleen is a licensed mental health counselor with over 25 years of experience at RISAS and in private practice, working with adolescents and their families. Colleen is also the mother of four children, two millennials and two Gen Zs, so she knows firsthand what she's talking about. Please put your questions in the chat and Colleen will answer at the end of her presentation. Thank you again for your interest in this topic, and I'm now pleased to turn it over to Colleen. So hi, so this is a risk for me, um, presenting on Zoom. So I am pushing my boundaries and taking risks, but thank you, Sarah, and good evening, everyone. Thank you for your patience. So have, have you ever had a moment with an adolescent where you found yourself saying, what on earth were you thinking? I am a parent of four young adults, so I've had a lot of these moments. And so that's one of the things that makes me very interested in this topic. And as parents, teachers, grandparents, neighbors, we've all been concerned about youth, you know, at, at some point in our lives. Adolescents do things that we often judge as impulsive, outrageous, dangerous. And, you know, in normal times, there's a lot of talk about adolescent risk taking and what we as adults in our teens' lives can do to keep them safe, you know, safe from the dangers that they might encounter out in the world. But since COVID-19 pandemic, you know, the conversations about risk taking have been focused on risk of infection. So parents have had to enforce physical and social restrictions on adolescents, and that's kept, you know, many of them and us safe from illness. But there's concerns that protecting adolescents from taking risks may deprive them of social and emotional experiences necessary for their growth. So spring's arrived and our youth are out, they're, they're already out and about in our communities once again. And so I thought this would be a really good time to raise this topic of adolescent risk-taking. It's really easy when you care about an adolescent you know, to take their behavior really personally. And one of the things that have always, it's always helped me to do is just to remember that their brain 
is still developing. So today, I hope to help you understand the adolescents in your family and in your community by giving you some information about their brain development and how risk-taking is a natural and adaptive way for them to grow into actually safer, more competent adults. And I'll also talk about how we as parents, educators, community members can support and perhaps even encourage some risk-taking to help them grow in an optimal way. We often hear warnings when people talk about adolescence. There's so many negative narratives and it's, it's actually really always bothered me. When I worked in a high school, I used to keep a poem by my door called Teenagers Are Amazing, just to remind everyone you know, of their worth. And I'm not gonna read it to you, but I am showing you a picture of my children during the COVID-19 shutdown. They're all home together and it was really such a gift and it reminded me how amazing they can be. The teenagers are amazing. I wish the world would see just how beautiful we are and how compassionate we can be. And this poem is still on the door of the school-based counselor's office in the high school I worked at. So I know I'm not the only one who feels this way about adolescence. So I hope that you'll share my view. Take a moment just to think back on something risky you did as an adolescent. You know, I, I know for me, I grew up in upstate New York and I used to go tubing with my friends. And so you think tubing, you know, down a lazy river on a sunny afternoon, but we were adolescents. So we would go up to the dam uh, in the river, about 10 of us and tie all of our tubes together and just go time it exactly just right, right in front of where the water would let out and whoosh. And I can't even imagine doing that right now because it, the water would go rushing down. And that's just the kind of adolescent thing that I'm talking about. So a risk, it, it involves any kind of behavior or choice where the outcome is uncertain. When I work with parents, these are the top risky behaviors they're concerned about. Dangerous driving in a car, motorcycle, risky sex, sexting, internet porn, truancy, skipping school, fighting, substance use, smoking, vaping, binking, bin, or binge drinking, marijuana use, or illegal activities like trespassing and vandalism. Now, I, I think we know the kinds of things we worry about. Those are the biggies. Um, there's other things, playing with firecrackers, you know, the, the internet stuff like Tide Pod eating, and snorting cinnamon or nutmeg. It's Rhode Island, so if you go down in Narragansett, you see the kids jumping off bridges, swimming in dangerous waters. Some risks that adolescents take are silly things, you know, like, do you remember the ring and run, ring the doorbell, run away? Um, and I think during the pandemic, it was ordering DoorDash, your pizza delivery to a friend when, you know, they didn't really order it. But risk depends on social context. And risk taking 20 years ago looked different than it does now. And there is this tendency to normalize risk. When enough people do something, it's no longer considered risky. It alters the bar for what's considered normal. And you know, think about you know, meeting someone online, you know, Tinder, Grindr, swipe left, swipe right, hooking up. You know, that's something that, you know, years ago we would say, what? But a lot of us know someone who has met and married someone, you know, by meeting them on social media or on one of the dating apps. Putting yourself out, out there on Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, they've really been normalized. And, you know, that was happening before the pandemic. 
But where would where would we be in the pandemic without social media or gaming, playing video games? For one parent said, you know, I owe Fortnite an apology as that's how her 15-year-old connected with friends during the pandemic. He was chatting it up with his boys and talking about all kinds of social stuff. So we worry about these things and there are concerns, particularly for young adolescents. You know, internet activities still do carry a lot of risks. Uh, we're going to have a web webinar on May 24th and we have a presenter who's gonna discuss social media, gaming and internet addiction specifically, but I just wanted to put that out there. I know there was one project, the California project, that found that one in 16 had experienced some form of abuse online. So these are some newer and serious concerns. So there's this very interesting health paradox in adolescence. And during adolescence, they, they are really physically in the best shape ever in terms of strength and speed and reaction time and resistance to stressors. They don't get sick as much, but there's this 200% increase in morbidity and mortality from childhood to, to late adolescence. So it's like increases rapidly you know, by age 13, it peaks around age 20 and then it levels off at, at around 25. And you know, most, most of the deaths or unintentional injuries are connected to behavior or impulse control problems. So what do we do? What's a parent to do, a guardian, a teacher? Worry? You know, I was always taught worry is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere. Bubble wrap our kids. You know, current parental culture is one of worry and fear. And it's far out of proportion with the actual dangers that are present. And the news media doesn't help. You know, it highlights tragedies that involve children. In news talk, if it bleeds, it leads. The truth is, here's, the, here's another paradox. In order to become experienced, you've got to have experiences. Anybody who's applied for a job as a teenager knows that. Said another way, to become safe, you must take risks. And lessons need to be learned, but the learning isn't going to happen if protective parents are hovering nearby. So we need to really watch our lawnmower parenting, our helicopter parenting. Adolescents need opportunities to experiment and to explore for their healthy development. Research tells us that the adolescent brain has enormous potential for both learning and vulnerability. It's a time of social and emotional struggle, but it's equally a developmental period of great opportunity. So what triggers all of this behavior? We used to blame hormones for everything. You know, research shows only slight, a slight correlation between higher risk taking and higher testosterone. And estrogen may be more connected to emotion, emotionality, and that could play a role. Immature thinking, definitely. The brain's not fully developed until around age 25. And most studies show that abstract reasoning, memory, and that formal capacity for planning are fully developed by age 15 or 16. So under perfect conditions, like in a research lab, it's easy for them to say that they would not get into a car with a drunk driver, but more difficult to say no in practice. Is it inexperience? Definitely. You know, we all learn from mistakes, trial and error. You know, it's good to learn how deep the water is before you dive. I think of um, a young man I worked with. He was in my varsity athletes above substance abuse group. Was super responsible, two or three sport athlete, um, had saved his money for his car and 
um, went out on a Friday night driving in the rain at night in the high speed lane, going the speed limit very responsibly and flipped the car. And I remember him coming back to me super responsible and saying, Mrs. Judge, I had no business driving the speed limit. I didn't have the experience. It hadn't all been integrated yet. He needed to be going lower than the speed limit. Is it curiosity? Adolescent judgment can be overwhelmed by the urge for new experiences, thrill-seeking experiences that produce strong feelings and sensations. And I'll talk a lot more about that. And of course, there's boredom. Um, there was plenty of that during the COVID-19 shutdown. It's you know craving for excitement, urge for novel experiences. All of those are normative. And there's a willingness to tolerate stressful sensations in order to be admired or achieve status. So for example, they'll expose themselves in, a, in inappropriate ways just for likes on social media. And risks to some degree are a matter of perspective and definition. So you could say youth and young adults look at risks from a different lens. You know, across all cultures, adults see risk as a possibility of suffering harm or loss. You know, also consider like different generations living in the same household. Like, Mom or dad might be okay with trying out surfing, riding a bike alone, you know, to a friend's house, you know, if you're 15, listening to rap music or getting your ears pierced, but grandma says, no way, that's not appropriate behavior. Risk is also influenced by accessibility to resources such as health insurance, financial resources. It's not okay to play football if you've got no health insurance, even if you know it could lead to growth. Young people, Overall, you know, they see risk as a, an adventure and undertaking that promises excitement. And you know, the outcome, of course, is uncertain. And the more uncertain, the more exciting. So what is going on here? Why do they take risks? You know, with, this is the overview. With puberty, there's this growth spurt and fine tuning and hardwiring of connections that are made between different areas of the brain. So as a, as a result, the brain works more efficiently. And it, it's a great time for skill development and learning. But different centers of the brain develop on different timelines. And that frontal lobe, the center of rational decision-making and judgment, is the last part of the brain to develop. The limbic system, which is responsible for social and emotional behavior, is activated. And it drives that need to feel good, seek pleasure, and sensation. So remember, the brain develops from the back to the front and the area in charge of, the, of emotions, the limbic system, right in here, it matures early. So the area that regulates behavior, the ability to make decisions, the prefrontal cortex is the last part to mature. And teenagers process information with their amygdala, which is in the limbic system. The amygdala is really highly sensitive in teens. It's, it's like the brain's smoke alarm. You know, or a little more like a car alarm that goes off if you just brush up against it, you know, as opposed to one where you have to smash the window to set it off. And we know this from fMRI scans or brain images. You know, when adolescents are shown photos of people with fearful expressions, their amygdala is activated. But if you show those same pictures to adults, they respond from their prefrontal cortex. It's activated. So the response is really coming from a different part of their brain. You know, for example, one mom, you know, told of how her, her son came home from a bad day at school. She crinkles her forehead. I do that all the time. It looks like a skull. But she's just preoccupied. 
but he interpreted it as disapproval and immediately went on the defensive. And the amygdala, you don't need to remember this, you need to remember the words, but I think it's a good foundation. The amygdala also works together with the striatum. And what happens is it helps to evaluate what they, what they encounter as either dangerous or safe and as rewarding or not. For example, is this person trustworthy? Should I avoid this unhealthy food? And this is where families come in. The research shows us that having a stable home environment with a warm, available caregiver is one of the most critical factors for these brain processes to develop normally. A stable home and community environment provides a safe anchor from which to explore and learn about the world, and it plays a calming, regulatory role when it comes to their emotions. Just a word about the hippocampus. It's important because it's in charge of storing and retrieving memories, and it's really vulnerable. Its job is to differentiate between past and present experiences, and it can be really hurt by adverse or traumatic experiences leading to what looks like an overreaction to a small trigger, but it's really a reaction to a memory of a bad experience, and that can happen in adults too who've been understressed. But, you know, for an adolescent with their brain developing, it happens like when a teacher scolds a student who's been abused and they react with aggression as though they've been physically attacked. That's kind of what, what's happening. And teen brains are more vulnerable to stress than adults. And stress can be simple as lack of sleep, which can interfere with their thinking, and that may increase their impulsivity. So keep this all in mind when thinking about the stress that teens have been under this year during COVID restrictions such as distance learning. Most important, the teen brain has plasticity. It's ready to learn and adapt, and the teen brain is resilient. So we need to provide them with a safe anchor, a stable, warm environment that helps calm their amygdala, regulate their emotions, so that they can explore and learn about the world. Well, more on the brain. The human brain's made up of interconnected parts so that you know, seeing and moving and smelling, feeling, thinking, they're all run by different parts of the brain that, that have to communicate and coordinate with each other. In childhood, the brain is focused simply on developing, but at puberty, it begins to improve its communication system. And there's two processes taking place. The first one is pruning. The brain begins to systematically prune neural connections or the wiring of the brain and strengthening the connections being, being used. So the brain's connections that aren't being used are pruned away, making the brain work faster and more efficiently. And this explains why they're so good at adapting and learning. So the pathways in the brain are reinforced through repetition. And the more you run a neural circuit in your brain, the stronger that circuit becomes, like sledding or skiing down a path that gets more smooth and fast the more you slide down it. The more you practice piano or speak a language or juggling, the stronger those circuits get. So reading, sports, video games, hanging out, whatever the child is doing, these are the neural pathways that will be retained. So how you spend their time is crucial to brain development since their activities actually guide the structure of the brain. So it's use it or lose it. Learning is reward-based. I eat ice cream, it tastes good, that's rewarding, I do it again. For adolescents, that ice cream tastes really, really good. Rewards feel really good. 
nothing feels as good as it did in adolescence. Sorry to say that. There, there is high sensitivity to neurotransmitters or the brain's chemical messengers. In particular, dopamine. Dopamine is that neurotransmitter associated with reward circuits and learning. And, and I'm, I mention this because I've worked a lot with teens who experiment with alcohol, nicotine, marijuana, and other drugs. Dopamine reward plays a role in addiction. Think of addiction as a form of learning. So early practice of sitting on the couch being high leads to, well, learning how to sit on the couch and be high. So of course we can encourage more healthy behaviors to get that dopamine high, like running or dancing. And that second process that's making the adolescent brain communication system so efficient is myelination. Neurons, or, or the brain cells, become coated with this white, fatty, or waxy substance. It's called myelin, or white matter, making cells more efficient in the way that they carry messages to the brain. So the myelin protects the nerve cells like, like an insulation, or like that rubbery plastic cover on the electric cord. You know, the teen nerve cells are still unprotected, like you know wires that are exposed. So it's important to be careful with them, whether that's regarding head injury, wear your helmet, or, or other things. You know, there's evidence that adolescent binge drinking affects the brain's myelin, and, and that can impact their ability to control their behavior. And this is why we want to delay use of substances at least till over 21. These are also, these are the kinds of things that when you're talking to teens, you can teach them. They're interested in their own development and it might be a hook to get them interested in taking care of their brains. Some of this is what some of our student assistance counselors teach in, in class. To sum it up, adolescents have the same cognitive skills as adults, but they don't have the same ability to make rational decisions, especially when they're emotional. A good example is when a teen who's clear about their sexual boundaries is in a situation where they're really caught up in the moment. And contrary to popular belief, adolescents do not think they're invincible. They do understand the consequences of behavior. Actually, they, they often take too much time deliberating. So they're able to do the math and do the calculations. They think, if I run this yellow light, the probability is I won't get hit by an oncoming car. And they will be statistically accurate. But an adult, based on experience and, and their brain being more developed and the connections more solid, gets the gist of how serious the risk is, and they hit the brakes. When, an ad when adolescents are with their peers or under conditions of emotional arousal, they're likely to pursue the pleasure and reward, and their social-emotional network reduces their cognitive control. So being with their peers is rewarding, Social is a rewarding social situation, and that arouses emotion. I think the best example is Lawrence Steinberg's experiment in 2005. You know, with teens in a driving simulator, he put them all in the simulator alone, and they could follow all the rules of the road, stopping at the stop signs and the lights, put them in with several of their peers, and all bets were off. Of course, this is why we have graduated licenses. So there's imbalance between the cognitive and the emotional brain, but it's biologically driven and normative. Risk-taking has been beneficial to our survival. All social mammals exhibit similar kind of risk-taking behaviors during adolescence. It's totally normal. And again, it can help us to not be so upset with our teens when we understand that this is what they're supposed to be doing to grow up and to survive. Across the animal kingdom, risky behavior helps 
adolescents develop into safer and more confident, incompetent adult animals. I, I came across this book called Wildhood, and it was written by a cardiologist who happened to be working with humans and zoo animals. And it was also with an evolutionary biologist. And they noticed that throughout the animal kingdom, whether you're a penguin, a hyena, a humpback whale, or a wolf, in order to be an adult, you got to learn these certain competencies, how to be safe, how to protect yourself from predators. And so they do something called predator inspection. So you'll see like adult otters all staying away from the sharks, but the teenage otters swimming right in close to check them out. And they're swimming all together doing this. And that's what they're supposed to be doing to inspect the danger. So the theory is that if they're predator naive, they're like an overprotected, like an overprotected child. It's like being a farm-raised salmon. They're, they're not sea smart. So they go to the mouth of the river and they could get gobbled up. So there's safety in numbers and traveling together with other teenagers, with other adolescent humans or animals helps them inspect the danger. So what's this to me as a parent? Let them watch horror movies with friends. Humans practice predator inspection through activities like horror movies that allow them to watch in the safety of their home and be exposed to the danger in this safe way, eating their popcorn. True crime podcasts, I don't know if you listen to that, like My Favorite Murder, you know, they owe their popularity to the evolutionary legacy of predator inspection. And roller coasters, they're a form of mental rehearsing. You know, it's great to let adolescents do these things. You know, another test is, you know, how to socialize. So there are social hierarchies, social statuses in the animal world. If you're an animal and you're left out of the group, that might mean absolute peril. You may not survive if you're not part of the group. The strong survive. So think about your adolescent's brain and how they react to not being invited, bombing a test, being embarrassed online, being left out, you know, so, that social media hits, not getting them, that, that hits hard. It feels to them like a matter of life or death. And that's something we need to understand. So, you know, one thing we can do as parents is give our teens like a status sanctuary. Just let them color, <laughs> you know, let them hug their stuffed animal, hang out at home alone. It's okay. Even though the world is opening up again, give them a break where they can just be. And the third test, you know, is how to connect romantically, taking risks in terms of sexual communication, not sexual activity. That The mechanics of that's easy. That That's not hard to learn. It's the expression, the courtship that takes time to make connections. And as parents, families, role models, we can model loving connection, good communication. And we'll talk more about that later. The last test, the fourth test for adolescence is the end game for a lot of us how to live independently, finding your own food, feeding yourself so you don't go into the world and starve, literally if you're an animal, figuratively if you're an adolescent. So taking risks to become safe is not a paradox. It's actually a requirement for adolescent and young adult animals on earth. These are some of the ways that human adolescence experiences are rooted in evolutionary past. But risk-taking is not all bad. Risk-taking in adolescence can be a good thing. It motivates or drives young people to try out new skills and roles. And young people are often at the forefront of innovations. 
you know, Google inventions by teenagers and you're going to get some really cool stuff like a pancreatic cancer detector and some amazing, amazing inventions. Risk-taking, it also motivates young people to be civically engaged and mobilized to create social change. Social activism is often driven by young people. But think about a time in history when young people have taken risks, maybe even got bad press for it. The 1960s civil rights activists, Black Lives Matters protesters, the kids from Parkland, Florida, Marjorie Stone and Douglas High School speaking out for gun control. Young people, the young people come to my door uh, advocating for clean water, getting out the vote, Pride Week celebrations. So let's reframe this. Adolescent impulsivity is actually a reflection of boldness and independent thinking, and their moodiness is actually a source of empathy, excitability, and passion. We talk about a period of intense learning. It's not just learning tasks and skills, but it's about learning who they are and who they want to be. And they need space for positive interactions with peers. We need to let them out, let them out and about to fully develop these skills. And we need to give them, you know, give that to them when we can, even if it means that they're interacting with their peers while playing video games or they're dyeing their hair purple. So remember to that, you know, while encouraging youth you know we're we're doing this while being their anchor and stable place to explore from and many young people navigate through adolescence without any kind of harm i just want to mention a few other factors that can facilitate or buffer or protect you know them from that transition from positive risk taking to something maladaptive or risky behaviors and one is temperament um, individuals who are inhibited by nature or prone to high anxiety, they might not be at risk for harmful activities. These are the youth who often respond to scare tactics, such as we do in school assemblies on texting while driving. My daughter was always a more careful child and that's carried through to her adulthood. Young people who start puberty at an early age are more likely to engage in risky behavior. They look older, so others treat them like they're older and they may offer alcohol or there may be earlier initiation of sex. And it's important for their parents to be aware of that. And peers can contribute to that group think kind of behavior, you know, where risky behavior is a part of the group acceptance. Uh, that's always a parental worry. For example, I, I worked with a wrestling team, a bunch of kids on the wrestling team with a culture of self-starvation very unhealthy, they, they needed to make weight. And that was associated with lots of discomfort. And somehow that morphed into aches and pains and marijuana is medicine. And there was lots of intervention that was needed there. And the team, team culture was a drug use. And of course, environmental stress, such as discrimination, poverty, might increase risk taking. It may be that a youth is living with food insecurity and, you know, they, they take the risk of skipping school and failing because they've got other priorities. You know, a different example, we hear a lot about, you know, youth in the, the LGBTQ plus community, but engaging in risky alcohol or other substance use. It's often true, you know, if they're living with higher levels of anxiety due to isolation from their families, if they don't feel supported, if they don't feel seen by their families or in their community. They may be subject to bullying, so they may self-medicate or, or run away and be in a risky situation. And other youth, 
Other youth are growing up with adverse childhood experiences. Regardless of socioeconomic status, they may have problems such as living with a parent with a substance use disorder, serious medical illness, or domestic violence. And we know there's a very direct correlation between these experiences and the stress hormones that are released. Remember that emotional part of the brain and the amygdala, that alarm system, now, these youth may be more reactive, which is why we as adults need to be conscientious about being a calming, stable force anchor in their lives. And there has been collective adverse experience in this past year. I don't need to tell you all what that was. We're entirely unsure this year of how the restrictions and the isolation has impacted adolescent development overall and risk-taking in particular. We know there's been an increase in anxiety and depression as youth worry about their schoolwork and social life, family finances. We may be dealing with youth who need us to push their boundaries more, and we may be dealing with youth who need uh, to explore and take risks or who need to be protected. Uh, one thing we've learned is we've learned a lot about listening to youth, and so I hope we'll be, do be, we'll be doing a lot more of that. We need to give youth the support that they need to explore and to discover. And I'm going to focus next on talking directly to those of you who are parents or guardians. But in terms of what we can do to protect youth, it's, it's important to first highlight the broader youth development approach because we don't raise our children in a vacuum. And the temptation is to think, I'll just keep my kid away from those other bad actors or bad neighborhoods. But there you know, there are resources that need to be in place for all youth to thrive. And if those resources are in place for other youth, you know, then that has an impact on all of us. Rising tide lifts all boats. It's a, so a great safety net for our youth, you know, builds on all community sectors and social areas that provide young people with services, supports, and opportunities. And services are, are like those things that are done to or for youth things that we do to meet young people's needs, like providing shelter, food, clothing, healthcare, education. Now, supports are things that are done with youth, the mentors, the caring adults, teachers. Those of you who are listening are probably those people because you're here today. They offer guidance and positive relationships with young people. And also part of the supports are clear expectations and boundaries structured settings, as well as access to information and resources. And you see this in church youth groups and families, school-based counseling programs like our student assistance programs, and opportunities. These are things done by youth. Youth are provided with meaningful, real opportunities to practice and expand on what they know and learn, as well as like occasions for leadership and contribution through youth engagement. So this service work and working with the disabled, uh, volunteering at a local hospital, leadership. So we can help youth by being a part of any of these and supporting any, any of these types of programs that could be direct, like mentoring youth on STEM if you're an engineer or just supporting pro getting these programs in place. We rise by lifting others. So what can we do in our own homes with our own children? What can parents and caregivers do? very essential to keep communication lines open. Now, parents often don't realize that they're really influential in the lives of their teenagers. So stay connected and spend time, listen, pay attention to activities, online, offline. 
It's that, that is a way of showing you care, paying attention, even if it's small things and getting some of the details shows you care. It's especially true. You know, if you, if you communicate the reasons why you're interested in their actions or whereabouts, then it goes over a little better. It's not to be nosy or intrusive, but because you're authentically interested, curious about them, you know, who would you have lunch with today at school? What movie did you and your friends watch together? Who's going to be out at the basketball court tonight? Make staying in touch with what's going on in their life a routine part of your life. So it starts early and it becomes just threaded through everything. You know, and share that quality time. We have all heard about quality time. It doesn't have to be a lot of time, but without the distraction of cell phones, whenever you can, during meals, it can be a bowl of cereal in the morning. It doesn't have to be that family dinner. While, you, while you're in the car, I know when my kids learned to drive, I missed that time in the car. Listening to music or chatting, the music itself would be, you know, the source of conversation, just hearing about the artist and what they think about the words and the message. If you don't have a car, you know, a walk together, walk to the bus stop, the laundromat, you know, simply hang around at home together. You know, hopefully many of you had, you know, that opportunity during the pandemic to make those connections at home, you know, and don't assume that they know that you love them, show them, tell them. It's hard to do that with an adolescent. Be a positive role model. We've heard this many times, but it's easier said than done. But children are great imitators, so give them something great to imitate, not just regarding healthy behaviors, but in relationships and social skills. So show your teen how to cope with stress in positive ways and how to be resilient. And here's this, I always feel like I'm, I'm going back and forth between the let them ride, let them run, give them the freedom, give them space, and give them clear boundaries and expectations. And that's part of navigating parenting. You know, I usually recommend Pick the top three most important values or safety issues. Those are the non-negotiables. We don't hit each other in this house. You know, we do not use alcohol before 21. We don't drink before the age of 21. And really, you know, pull a hard line on the really important safety issues and let other small things go. Haircuts, what time they do the chores, whether or not they walked the dog a lot, you know, many arguments, but a lot of family arguments are over boundaries. Boundaries represent support and safety, and they help youth make decisions. Um, remember, they lead with that emotional part of their brain. So we need to be their prefrontal cortex at times, and we need to pay attention enough to know when those times are where we need to act as the thinking part of their brain. And make the expectations reasonable. Adolescents tend to live up to or down to parental expectations. So raise the bar high and they'll reach for it. Instead of focusing on achievements though, you know, like getting straight A's, you know, expect them to be kind, considerate, respectful, onerous, generous. That's the raising the bar high part. You know, we expect this kind of behavior. And and communicate what the rules and the consequences are in advance when you can. They do change, they evolve because the kids grow and learn. But discipline is about teaching. It's not about punishing or controlling your team. So include them in discussions as you create really fair and appropriate consequences. You know, you want you want to swiftly confront the behavior that's a problem. That's not always easy to do. 
but you know, do the best you can to know what those rules and consequences are in advance and discuss them. You know, let her know that you're going to take her skateboard if she uses it on the main road without a helmet. Monitoring is important. So what does that really mean? When they're two years old, we're supervising them. We don't let them out of our sight. They're going to climb up into that cookie jar and knock it right, right over and eat all the cookies. When they're adolescents, you monitor them. And again, it may depend on their temperament and you know what you've been seeing in terms of their behavior as to how closely you monitor them. Get their passwords and scanning apps. Use the scanning apps when you can to check in on the phone and their social media activities from time to time. It doesn't have to be all the time. But you know, a really good rule is don't allow that phone or don't allow the electronic devices in the bedroom at night. You know, that, that'll prevent them from losing sleep, which affects their behavior. They might seem really responsible, but it's hard to know exactly what they're doing if they've got that phone in the room at night. Get to know your child's friends and their friends, parents, or families in the best way possible. Pop in um, when their friends are around. I used to send my youngest son down to just go and be cute around my older kids' friends. Um, it's kind of a form of supervision. And, you know, I'm, I spoke a lot about brain development. That need for social emotional regulation is imperative. It's good to get young people involved in any activities that will allow them that chance to learn and practice communication, conflict resolution, coping skills, give them a chance to expand those experiences and learn about themselves. And you know, that could be through school connectedness, something, something in the school like sports or you know, the school play, um, if that ever comes back. And we know that school connectedness is a good predictor for positive behavior. You young people are connected to school, they do a lot better and they're much less likely to engage in risk behavior. So it could be school-based or it could be community-based. And use teachable moments. You know, when they see something on the news or when you see something and you're with them, you know, seeing another young person get in trouble or hurt is a great way to start a discussion. My son's friends used to climb on the roof of the high school. Um, and one day a boy fell through the glass above the gymnasium and he got really seriously hurt. And this was a very sad and scary lesson, but it was a really good opportunity to say, wow, you know, this stuff really does happen. We have the tendency to talk about what could happen and make this big thing. If anybody's ever seen Mean Girls and they see the, the gym teacher, you know, saying, don't have sex, you'll die. You'll, <laughs> so, um, you know, tell them what does happen. I know my son still likes to be high up in the air. He's a helicopter pilot. But I suppose, you know, right now that's a healthy risk. Give them space. It's so hard to find that balance between monitoring them closely and giving them space. You just need to make adjustments, you know, with your involvement as they get older and make exceptions to the rules when it makes sense. Oh, you know, your cousin's over this weekend, so it's okay then for you to sleep over, you know, or to stay out later. But always, always assume the best. You know, it's been said that all language is a form of hypnosis. So speak the positive things. You know, as always, you know, be that anchor, that stable, safe place for them to explore from. Just talking to everyone here, whether you're a parent or not. You know, encourage healthy risks. You know, encourage that shy or anxious child. You know, the ones with that kind of temperament to simply, you know, make a phone call, schedule their driver's license appointment or interview for that summer job. 
gently nudge them to step out of their comfort zone. You know, if they're if they're a little bit braver, go try out for the debate team or make announcements at school. If they're not inclined to physical activity, encourage them to join the track team. If they have one favorite sport, encourage them to play a different one. Help them learn a new skill. During the pandemic, a friend of mine's son taught himself to weave a tapestry. He's not afraid to bomb down a mountain on a snowboard as fast as he can, but how cool is it that he took a chance on something different? And another boy I know, he's become, he's been practicing basketball trick shots. He's absolutely amazing. And he's become Instagram famous, complete with sponsors. Point out, you know, point the outspoken adolescent um, to a cause that sparks their passion, advocating for the environment or human rights. There's a wonderful youth group in Providence called Young Voices, where urban youth are, they're powerful advocates for their communities. There's lots of leadership opportunities for youth. I look forward to you know this summer. There's a, going to be a youth-driven summit, and I'm involved in that. And it's a youth-led driving safety program where you know youth are passionate about keeping our roads safe from impaired drivers, and some of them have a real personal connection to that. And of course, you know, don't forget the fun stuff. You know, search for local boys and girls clubs that offer boxing classes or hip hop lessons. And in the Jim Gillen Center in Providence, it, it's a teen center where they've got a recording studio for teens to use. It's a nice, safe, fun place for teens to go after school. Lots of options out there. And help them evaluate the risks and consequences. You know, talk not just about the potential result of their choice, but about how they're gonna feel if that thing happens. Like if you skip school and miss the test, how are you gonna feel when you have detention or you fail? You go to the park and you fight that kid, you might win the fight, but how are you gonna feel when you get arrested? Recognize the red flags for serious problems. That is a whole other presentation in and of itself. Um, but it's watching for changes. Again, if you're paying attention really closely, you'll notice changes in mood, clothing, friends, grades. Be approachable. You know, listen without judgment. You know, even when you don't like what you're hearing, it's very hard. You have to brace yourself sometimes. We teach this when we do suicide prevention to be ready for what they're about to say to you. you know, we have another webinar coming up in May. Sojourner House is going to talk about how to be an approachable adult. So pay attention also to your own risk taking or how you laugh about other risks and share your own struggles within reason, you know, always with that lesson learned. Be an anchor for their self-regulation, consistent connection. You don't have to be the parent or guardian to have a calming influence. <clears throat> you. Young people need that consistent loving support from as many adults in their lives as possible. Um, one can make a difference, but let's all try to be there for them. I want to mention making exit plans. It feels like a really hypocritical thing to do when you're a parent, because you might say to them, don't ever do this. Do not ever ride on a motorcycle. You know, my uncle was killed on a motorcycle. That's not acceptable. But if you ever are in a position where the only possibility is you've got to get on a motorcycle, call me. Don't drink alcohol. But if you are ever in a position where you've drank or if you're in a position where you have to get into a car with some, please call me. No questions answered, at least not that night. And have an escape route for them. What you're looking at here is the X plan. It's just an adolescent texting an X to their parent and saying, come get me. 
So, um, you know, tell them about the Good Samaritan Law. They won't get in trouble if they ask for help. So it's not hypocritical. It's really important that you be a safe space for them. You know, studies show that three out of four teens say that their parents are the biggest reason not to drink or smoke. So I'm sure that's true about other risks that they take too. Colleen, I'm there's a pause. Yeah. Yes, there is a question that um, I had given people the option to okay. put in the chat or send me a text. And this was texted to me. And it's someone who's asking how to start a conversation with your kid about, say, drinking. I mean, how okay. do you start a conversation? Yeah. Um, okay. Well, that's it right there. That is that, you know, communication piece, which I find a lot of parents. I think starting that conversation. The conversations, if they're ongoing, it makes it a lot easier to start a conversation about alcohol and drugs if you've talked with them about lots of other things before. So on a regular basis, you, know, you might be thinking you want to ask something, but you won't be interrogating them. If On a regular basis, you're, you're just asking them things like, you know, describe your perfect day, you know, open-ended questions. You know, if you could change one thing in the world, what would it be? So I know someone who's actually put popsicle sticks on their kitchen table with these kinds of questions and they put them out there regularly. And then, then they can maybe ask, maybe one of the popsicle sticks could be um, asking about alcohol. And what do you think about alcohol and drugs? Do you, what do you know about the alcohol and drug use of some of the kids in your school? And so just opening up the conversation in that way and weaving it into other conversations is the best way to approach it. If you wait, you can you can wait for a teachable moment, like if something's happened, someone's gotten in trouble, um, or you've caught them. And so I think it really depends on the situation. But I think the best way is with I statements too. I'm really concerned about some of what I'm hearing. You know, I'm hearing about some kids at school that are drinking, and I'm wondering what you think about that. And lots and lots of listening. So that's how it works. You speak, I listen, as much as you possibly can. So I hope that answers the question. I don't think this person attended, so um, she wouldn't know that you would answer this. Once we understand why, what are the most effective responses or interventions for parents? But I believe you, you did. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's setting the boundaries, getting them involved, getting them involved in healthy activities keeps them busy, but it's more than keeping them busy. It gives them practice. It's that kind of practice. Um, and it's practicing not just the skills, it's practicing the social, the social skills, and it's practicing the emotion regulation, practicing connecting you know, you're building those connections between that frontal lobe and that amygdala, the emotional and the cognitive brain. Well, if there are no other questions or comments. Hi, Astrid. You know, I just want to say I love the fact that it was directly addressed that when kids, the, the boldness, that the expression of who I am in this world you know, self-determination. I love that that was woven into that because that's what the, that if we as adults don't remember who we were, then 
stridently being, you know, authentically us, who am I, all those things. It just, I love that this is one of the best approaches I've seen for adults to think about working with youth, being caregivers to youth. Kudos to you. I love it. I love it. As a youth advocate, double thumbs. Thank you. I'll send you your paycheck later. (laughs) I paid you to say that. Right? No, that's great. Because I mean, those of us that work with kids, we know that ultimately inside their head, they're saying any attempt to feel squash, they're feeling squash. They're not going to listen to anything we say, even though we say we remember. I loved yeah. the approach. Thank you. Great. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. And I, but I think it's, it's really hard. And then I've done some versions of this before. The parents are usually very focused on like, how, but how do I talk to them about marijuana and tell them not to do it? And it's just so much bigger than that. And um, I mean, of course, you know, once you're in that position, then that's why I say that, you know, I will give credit to the Heron Frown Foundation for that, be the frontal lobe. Um, because, you know, and I think that Chris Heron sometimes will say like, you know, what is it? Why do you need to change yourself? You know, but also we have to set, we have to set these boundaries as parents, but if we're always setting boundaries, and that's, yeah, we're not helping them grow and develop. And we want them to be able to navigate the world. Thanks. And that we don't know what it's going to look like. Um, I just like this slide because you know, they ask kids, like, you know, why don't they use marijuana? Because I don't feel like getting high. And I thought, well, why not? Because they're not, they're not having to change how they feel inside. You know, they're not struggling with something that they need to change. They're not, they're not. They're busy enough doing other exciting things. But the second thing there is my parents would disapprove. So parents matter a lot. And I, you know, if you're an educator, you can teach youth about their brain potential. You know, even like a stroke patient, you know, gets hope from learning that their brain still has neuroplasticity and that there's so much growth and potential still. And, you know, making good use of peer pressure and role models of other youth um, in class and, and, you know, teaching about the social effects of things that they're going to do. Like, you know, kids are more concerned about the fact that, you know, they're going to get bad breath from smoking than they are that they're going to die from lung cancer. You know, so those types of things. And then teaching self-regulation in schools. And this I thought was important too, is taking care of yourself. But, you know, my last thoughts were really that, you know, what on earth is really what the, what their behavior is going to look like, you know, when the world opens up and, you know, what we really should be asking them is what on earth do you need? And it's supportive relationships, it's experiences. And, you know, we have to just make sure that we remember it's a time for discovery for them and let them discover. So their young people are forced for good in our society and our communities you know, as they transition into adulthood. And, you know, we want to back them up on that. So thank you, everyone. Thank you, Colleen. And thanks, thank everyone for joining us this evening. And we hope to see you at our next one. You'll be hearing about it soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, everybody. Keep shining your light. Thanks for listening. To find more content like this and see the video version of these webinars, please see the links in the description below. If you like this one, please like, share, and subscribe. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.